It's really just kind of opening our eyes to a much bigger vision of who we are, why we're here, where all this is headed, and every bit of it is hinged on a deeper understanding of the nature of consciousness, which involves things like terminal lucidity, near-death experiences, and those past life memories in children. me. I'm just monitoring this post in the secret Facebook group, making sure that my mom, Terry, doesn't comment on it. <laughs> it's about debt consolidation. Oh, she's going to say, see my guy, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Hi, she's Terry. Gonna, she's going to say, see my guy, Eric. And she's going to be like, make sure your credit score is like blah, blah, blah. She's like a credit score. Does anyone else like never look Nazi. at their credit score? Meaning like you don't want to. Like I, I don't, mm. I'm not like, hey, let me look at my credit mm. score today. So my mom's obsessed with credit scores. I, I should like, I think you should be no. monitoring it on a regular basis, monitoring yeah. on a regular basis, but I get it on my chase account too. Is hers insane? Yeah. Ours, our whole family. I have an insane well, yeah. score, but hers is insane just cause she's in that industry mm-hmm. and she's always like, I don't know. Trying to save the world by getting everyone to have, what is it? 800, 700? Yeah. 800 is perfect. Mm-hmm. 800 is perfect, I guess. Oh. Yeah, I mean, whatever. What does that even mean? I'm not defined by my credit score. <laughs> There's probably support groups for people Just kidding. <laughs> who like define themselves by their credit score 100%. and feel so low. There was a point where, in right out of college, uh, yeah, where like there were some loans in my name and it was like- I had that happen fucked. to a good friend too. Actually, two yeah. really good friends. Their family took loans out in their name and didn't tell them until they graduated. Yeah. And then- It wasn't my parents' fault. It's just- that was when the economy collapsed mm-hmm. and they lost everything. And I was like, oh, and I didn't understand it all. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, that's my name on it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, you sign like a little bit. Yeah. I'm like, hey, like why a- can't I rent an apartment in New York City? <laughs> Jelly roller pen. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I was actually, you were monitoring the Facebook group. I was literally last night. Sometimes I get in black holes because I really want to allow myself to like my- be mindless sometimes. Because sometimes I like we spend our real good job at that lately. Spend our days being so intentional that I get tired of being intentional. Anyone be willing that way? Yeah. So I was like, I brought my phone in my bed, which I haven't been doing lately. (laughs) I was like, you're just bad fucking around. But I was looking at um because I wanted to get us a trampoline Mm -hmm. for the um for the studio just to get our lymphatic system going. Guys, are you getting horny? <laughs> just two girls with a trampoline in an apartment. It's like the most unsexy oh, you don't uh, even exercise. Know what my body Because we're just like, huh, huh, yeah, huh. just let it down. <laughs> um, but I was like reading reviews because, you know, you got to like check that shit. There's so many different ones. And people are so dramatic. 
so I, dramatic on Amazon. Yeah. So there's this this one trampoline. It looks like, you know, fine, whatever. So there's one star. Awful. Jumping surface is pathetic. Cover rips quickly exposing sharp screws. A dangerous waste of money. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, terrible design. Bought for Christmas. It was easy to assemble, not very bouncy, but it was okay for the first two months or so when my 90 pound daughter was the only one using it. After a few weeks with my 120 pound daughter bouncing on it for an hour or so daily, it is no longer bouncy and the bouncing surface is stretched out and distorted. (laughs) No one in the house weighs more than 130. There is no way this thing should be on its last leg with less than three months of Why are you use. so weight focused? It's Dad? crazy. Yeah, why are you so weight focused? <laughs> He's like my 90 pound daughter. Yeah, and then my 120. I was waiting for him to be like, my wife got on. Uh huh. My wife got on after Thanksgiving and she was about one. Oh my God. No. Oh, and this guy goes, not worth buying one star. Also, how much was that? Yeah, literally. 29 bucks? It was like 50 bucks. There you go. Bought this for my wife 10 months ago. She uses it three to four times per week and the trampoline is stretched and worn out. Description says there is that it is rated rated for 250 pounds. No way this is true. My wife is around 150. And look at the, look at the attached pictures of how it held up to a person around 150. <laughs> yo, what's by the me? way your wife might be telling you she's one. Oh, yo life i was no. just thinking i'm like yo the number that justin would say is like mm, 30 pounds off <laughs> totally. she would literally be like she's you know x number and it would be I, like when i told you that seven years ago when we met i love when boys guess weight because i'm like tell me because i know it's gonna be so small <laughs> i know yeah well or like too high yeah you yeah. know <laughs> Yeah. But they always go lower because they think they're going to get fucking punched in the face. I'll never forget when we first started dating. He's like, I think I know how much you weigh. And I'm like, sure. Out of the blue? Yeah, I don't know what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, And he said a number and I was like, Hmm. literally 30 pounds. Like that was 25 pounds off at the time. And I was like, you're a darling. (laughs) We just started dating. You're love drunk. That's sweet. That's sweet. I think a safe number. I weigh more now than I think I ever have in my whole life. But it's funny though. I remember distinctly, but I literally, yeah, couldn't be happier. Same. It's it's weird because I think it was after I came home from college after my freshman year. I gained twenty pounds. Mm. I remember distinctly looking at the scale mm-hmm. and being so shocked because I yeah, felt I fine. That. What I think I forget what the number was. No, I do remember what the number was, and I'm not crazy far from that now, mm-hmm. but it's like different. It's so it's different. muscle. It's so like, different. I, I, think I don't about, know. Even in high school, I remember there was like a period in my like best guy friend at that time was like, <laughs> he's like, you've gotten fat. <laughs> and I'd been on, I just got on birth yeah. control uh-huh. and I was Same, like, oh yeah. shit, what am I going to do? So then I weighed myself and I, I literally saw the number and I was like, holy mackerel. Mm-hmm. I had definitely put on weight. Like I wasn't fat, but you know, I was just like, Mm -hmm. but it's weird because during that time, no one took pictures. We didn't have like pictures taken of us all the time. I wasn't in shoots. You know what I mean? Like I never was in a photo. So I if you brought your camera out to the whatever, that's the only way you would really That's the only way I would see myself and be like, this is what I look like. Cause I would look in the mirror and be like, oh, this is me. You know, like whatever. I I feel fine. So I had no idea. I'm like, And I, yeah, I remember that. I was like, that was like the first time I bought a scale. And that's when like, I kind of got not obsessed, but I was like, definitely. It threw me into a spiral. It threw me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, this number. And then, yeah. And then it was funny, like, you know, I don't know. Just, yeah, that 
don't know, the number game. I don't even, I don't weigh myself at all. I don't have a scale. We went to um, do a helicopter over Great Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty sweet. Um, (laughs) And they were like, how much do you weigh? And I was literally like, that up. (laughs) Don't care. And I was probably way off. And when they weighed me, I looked to the side. Oh, I always do that at the doctor. Look to the side. Never look. Dude, at the doctor? Huh? I, t- I tell her, I said, don't say it out loud. Yeah. It's not because I'm like ashamed. I'm just no. like, I don't need to know that number will actually penetrate my brain mm-hmm. for the next two weeks yep. and it's going to annoy the fuck out of me. Yep. It's just because then you like second guess. You're like, if you feel good, you're like, okay, but I'm this. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's so weird like to think about like those numbers because it's like you have a number when you're like so young that you kind of work with, you know, like your set point number that you kind of get however young you are that you start to weigh yourself. And Mm -hmm. then that, like that first time I weighed myself ever was like a number that I was like, oh my God, my -hmm. friends are probably like, 50 pounds lighter than this. And that number mm-hmm. is now my my first set point that I created in my life. Yeah. You know, that is like yeah. a marker. Totally. And then, you know, there was various throughout, but it was always like, whatever this set point number is, I want to work underneath that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And then whatever would happen. But, but it's interesting because I don't, I, you know, I obviously don't weigh myself. I don't care either way. But I do think when, if I have a healthy relationship with, my body and food and whatever, maybe I was really trying to be something else that like weighing yourself isn't that bad of a practice because I have felt sometimes in my life when I was weighing myself regularly that it was just like a accountability mm-hmm. check. Yeah, You know, it was just like seeing like what's up. You know, if I had, a, if you have a healthy relationship with it, it can kind of be like, what's happening? Yeah. Sometimes if people have one in their bathroom and I'm like at their place, I'll- one strip down to as little clothing as oh, possible gosh. because if I like, what are you je- doing in there? If I have my jeans on, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be all fucked up. Literally, <laughs> but like, like I will. To, I'm trying to shit in your bathroom so I, I can weigh myself butt ass naked. <laughs> I will hop on sometimes because I'm like, I need to see how I yes. feel about that number. And then, obviously, now more recently, it's just like oh, okay. Yeah. I think after like doing the fit modeling thing in New York where they would literally measure my thigh every week, you almost get to the point where you're just like, I don't give a fuck Mm -hmm. about numbers. Like you, I literally kind of was trained. I had to, or else I would drive myself fucking crazy. Mm. Like they would threaten to like fire me if like my hip got a half inch bigger and I'm like, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just didn't care enough to like actually... Put in the yeah, when your body work. is made a number, you know? Yeah. And it's so interesting too, because it's like the weight that I was at whatever time I've been there, you know, around whatever in high school I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And then, but it's a completely different. It's completely different. I mean, like even my we body, weren't even as tall as we were now. Yeah, but I was- You were tall? I was up there. Tall and weight. Uh-huh. I, was, I was pretty, pretty big. Not big, but I was just like. Also hormones too. Hormones. I was on, you know, birth control. I wasn't, I was kind of like in a really bad eating thing where I'd go home and like eat and try and throw up, but just Mm. really end up spitting it out. And, you Mm. know, I'm not saying that like casually, but I was just, it was like a, maybe Mm. the height of like my eating thing. Yeah. You know, my friend at the time who I'm thankful, he said something to me because it, it did help me in the end, you know, understand kind of where I was and kind of see myself as others were seeing me, but it did kind of fuck me up, Mm. you know? It's interesting to kind of think about, and we've talked about it on the pod, just kind of these, 
habits or relationships with mm-hmm. your body in our family history. I know you have it. My mom, my Nana, my mom, I think my Nana said the other day, she's like, oh, I'm so fat. My Nana's a bird, you know, but like to her, mm-hmm. but to her, you know what I mean? But like my mom grew up with that and then I see, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I see kind of just, you know, I think I'm I'm breaking the cycle a bit, but I definitely, when I was younger, had those tendencies to kind of be like, hmm. you know, it's just, it's very interesting. It's almost like sometimes with that, those generations and people, it's like a, it's just like a filler or something. It's like, a, mm. you know, it's not like thought through. It's like, I'm fat. My mom will do that all the time. And it's like, you're not, it's not an even intentional. Yeah. It's like a, something that just comes out. That's like, part of how it's been so, you know, they've done it so long that they're not even thinking intentionally about what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, even, you know, heavy or not, whatever, whatever your body is, it's like, I don't know. I think also the perspective is off if you're saying that when, I think specifically for like the older generation, it's like the fact that you're able to kind of like, move and like be healthy. Like I, I think you're, everything is probably off. Cause the number one should mm-hmm. be like, I'm healthy and alive and I'm able to move my body. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like maybe if you're younger and things mm-hmm. are like, that's more of know. our mindset, like our generation, yeah. or yeah. I think it's what's been changing, you know, thankfully and hopefully mm-hmm. with the way things have been going, that it is more that mindset. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you told my mom like, oh, you should be, well, now she's becoming more grateful because she has had health issues in the past couple of years. So it kind of has been a totally. you know, cruel reminder, but it is like, if you're like, oh, you should be actually grateful. You can walk. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. You know, I would never think of that. Mm-hmm. And we were talking the other day of just about like what you say to your body, your body listens. Listens so hard. Mm-hmm. It's great. I know. <laughs> I just said, I loved that salad with chosen foods dressing. Oh. Yo, I just, Which my mouth that? is watering so hard. I know. <laughs> my heart is singing today because I had Chipotle ranch dressing from chosen foods. It's, I mean, salads are amazing. <laughs> with, with I brought it in my bag. My mouth is watering. I might have a spoonful. I dare you. I will. I just need to find something <laughs> in my apartment the- I can dip in it. I'm sure you can find something. I definitely can. <laughs> Even if it's, I'll put like, I'll like dip like four Sigmatic packets in there. <laughs> oh man. The shit that I used to do when you I think like nothing it, Also, we apartment. have a code with Chosen Foods, almost 30 if you want it. Not yeah. sponsored, but yo, that shit is. 50% off. Oh, it's 50? It's fucking 50. Of Fuck. First purchase of $10 lied. or more. On my Instagram story. Oops. Oh, what'd you say? I said it was 30. Rattlesnakes. Come on. I'm a piece of shit and everyone's going to see it. <laughs> All right. Today on the podcast, we have Evan Alexander. Oh, mm-hmm. shoot. <laughs> this is really cool to think about life, the afterlife, consciousness. I actually heard him on the Goop podcast. So I thought his story was really, really interesting and wanted to have him on Almost 30. And it is fascinating his story. So I'm really excited for you guys to, to, to hear. Yeah. He was actually a neurosurgeon for years and years. Um, and he's an author now his book proof of heaven. We talk about at length, uh, proof of heaven, a neurosurgeon's experience, uh, journey into the afterlife. He describes that 
experience, the near death, and then kind of what happened after and asserts that science can and will determine that the brain does not create consciousness and that consciousness survives bodily death. So we've been talking a lot recently just about death and grief. And this conversation on so many levels just kind of spoke to me, but on the level too of just coping with grief Mm. and to think of the body as, you know, just that a body, a shell, you know, and, and having that consciousness live on is kind of a beautiful thing to really think about. Especially, and it's so fascinating to someone that came from the, the science background that he did, which seems very sterile and very disconnected from consciousness and from spirit oftentimes that he had such a profound experience in his coma that completely changed his life and changed his perspective on everything as it relates to consciousness and as it relates to our soul living on after, you know, death. Yeah. And he was just so sweet to talk to. Yeah. He was very present with us and so passionate about his experience and sharing it and really bringing together like the, you know, people who are adhere more to the science that explains life mm. and those who, you know, lean on the spiritual a little bit more, just kind of creating this oneness mm-hmm. in the understanding. So um, thank you, Evan, for coming on. Mm. And we're excited yeah. for you to hear this. EbenAlexander.com. That's E B E N. Alexander, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R.com. And his books are Living in a Mindful Universe, The Map of Heaven, Seeking Heaven, and Proof of Heaven. And we are so excited to share with you him on the podcast today. All right, y'all. We'll, uh, we'll share a review of the week on the other side, as well as talk a little bit about what we have coming up that we are excited about. Enjoy this one. Catch you on the flip. Our community has been buzzing about your work and your book. Um, so we're excited mm-hmm. to go story. to go deep today. I'm assuming here uh, you're also talking about the new book, Living in Mindful Universe. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Excellent. Well, I'm yeah. very glad you all are up to speed <laughs> on that one. Of course, my co-author. Aw, come on in. So beautiful. How are you? How are you? Thank you. I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. I know. We cannot wait. We were like, yes, of course. We'd love to talk to both of them. We are (laughs) we are so excited. I have a a daughter who's 29 and he has a friend who's who's is he 30? He's 30. He's 30. So we get your age group. We love your age group. Totally. Our third book was dedicated to your age group. Right. Oh my gosh. The book to our children. You and should talk to, about that. Yeah, I will. Because yeah. it's your generation who's going to fix these problems, please. And thank you. <laughs> oh, I yeah. love that. Thank you so much for the inspiration. Sometimes we get beat up on and it really feels good <laughs> for you guys to believe in us. But oh, I yeah, we totally we believe in you guys. <laughs> okay. Bye. We'll see you soon. Um, so right. wait. Why did you de- why did you dedicate your book to to our generation and to your kids, or was it more so to your kids? Uh, well, we dedicated it to our kids, but we mm-hmm. said uh, in the trust that their generation will make this world a far better place than it is, uh, and I believe yeah. that's very First much the case. Generation. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's the. Uh, oh. 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 Oh, I love that. There you go. Took the words right out of your mouth. (laughs) I mean, the reality is my generation has already done plenty of damage and uh, we've failed to understand our responsibility. And I believe that uh, your generation is uh, in many ways ahead of the game and is really ready to take the reins. And I am ecstatic (laughs) that uh, you guys can do this. And 
And we fully trust, uh, knowing our kids and their friends, uh, that your generation can absolutely handle it. So, Oh, well, thank wow. you. I mean, it feels, it does feel like conscious is, consciousness is changing and it feels like our generation is much more aware and much more just within community and I guess aware of the community of the earth and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But it seems like even the generation below us, there is like a hope that I have for them, you know, that right. is like profound. So it just keeps getting right. better and better. I'm, I'm I really agree. excited. I, I think it is. And uh, I still can't even believe some of the insanity when I look at what kind of the power structure that involves my generation that are still in political power uh, are still doing to this world. I mean, it's just, uh, it's madness. So we really have to flip it around. And that's why we trust that you guys and your generation can can handle every bit of that. Yeah. Mm. And I guess just before we, we dive into your story and everything, what would be your suggestion for how we could change that sort of political structure in the current climate that we live in now for people in our generation? Well, I think the main thing is to be active, uh, you know, be out there uh, in this world of following your heart and doing uh, what you feel is right. You know, when we see injustice, we need to step up and intervene and we need to take charge. And there are many places uh, in the world today where our government and our leaders are kind of erring down the wrong pathways and very dangerous and short-sighted uh, maneuvers that uh, will have implications for all of us. And that's why uh, for your generation, I just like seeing that they're engaged, they're active, um, that uh, they get people out to vote. I mean, voting is a very important thing. You can't just throw your hands up in despair and give it up and run. Uh, and run. You know, we really have, yeah, run for, uh, for office. We're really looking at all the things to work within the system and then also kind of at the edges of the system to help move it all in the right direction. Mm. So I think that those are really kind of the hallmarks. But, you know, meditation and going within are very important. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's what we do in our actions and our thinking, uh, in our voice um, and what we share with others and where we kind of uh, put our passion. Uh, that's what really counts. So to get out there and be active is uh, as important as going within and meditating to seek higher guidance. Can you imagine a president starting a meeting with a mindful meditation? Oh, man. <laughs> so, you, you know, actually, Karen, Karen recently, I don't want to steal any of her stuff, but he's been making a big point lately about, you know, what if every everyone on earth, and that would include not just children and firemen and, and doctors, but what if all our politicians and CEOs every morning would reach into their heart space mm. and feel what is right to do for this world today. Don't steal my I'm stuff. I'm not stealing your stuff. Come on, come on. <laughs> we'll talk about it, Karen. <laughs> yeah, Karen cover all that perfectly. So. Oh, we can't wait. Um, I would love for you to share with our listeners your story. Um, I know that you have not always been in this consciousness. So take us back. Well, it, you know, it all started with my career uh, as a neurosurgeon. My dad was a neurosurgeon. That's what kind of thrust me into that field. And I, I love the world of neurosurgery. I spent 15 years teaching neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. Uh, so I thought I had some idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness are all linked together. But I had bought into all the uh, kind of assumptions of modern science, uh, some of which are fundamentally just wrong. Uh, one of them is the notion that the physical world is the only thing that exists. And therefore, if you understand all the laws governing, uh, you know, subatomic particles and, and 
chemistry and all of that, you can understand all of causality in this world. And quantum physics shows us very clearly that that is not really the way it works. We have to go much deeper to have an understanding of brain, mind, and their connection. Now, in this kind of backdrop, uh, I had wanted to believe what, what I've been taught in my Methodist church growing up in North Carolina about an afterlife, a loving God, and power of prayer. But in my decades working as an academic neurosurgeon, I had more and more difficulty trying to understand how in the world could conscious awareness survive the death of the brain and body. That was a real mystery to me. And in fact, as I describe in my first book, Proof of Heaven, I had a dark night of the soul beginning back in uh, the year 2000 um, when I was uh, once again looking for my birth mother. I was adopted. I'd given up looking for her uh, decades earlier, but now in the year 2000, my older son had a school project that involved looking back in our family genealogy. So I humored him by reaching out to my birth family again. And this time, I finally got an answer, which I'd never gotten before, but the answer was negative. It was, no, we, we don't want to meet you. And it uh, sent me into a dark night of the soul that lasted eight years, right up until my coma. Mm. And I think that was all a very necessary part of the step. But just to kind of uh, short circuit right to your question, I want to briefly recount what happened to me back in November 2008 uh, when I was 54 years old and kind of honed a uh, a worldview that was built around physicalism and this notion of brain creates consciousness, and the uh, false notion in, uh, that many ha people have in modern science that believes that the brain creates consciousness, and therefore then, of course, our, birth, our existence is birthed to death and nothing more. Uh, and that's where I had struggled for so long, and that's what all shifted dramatically uh, in November 2008. I woke up with severe back pain and headache. Uh, very soon thereafter, was driven into uh, grand mal seizures and coma, and I was in coma mm. for the next week. Uh, when I was first taken to the emergency room, my doctors estimated about a 10% chance of survival. They recognized very quickly that I had a what's known as a gram-negative bacterial meningitis. That's the worst kind of bacterial meningitis you can have. And it really should have gotten rid of, of all but the most rudimentary of conscious experiences. And yet just the opposite is what happened. Uh, if you believe the brain creates consciousness, an illness like mine should have dumbed down my consciousness to this tiny dark trickle of nothingness. But that is not what happened. What really happened was uh, this extraordinary journey that I describe in detail in Proof of Heaven. And very briefly for your listeners, that journey started in what I call the earth or my view, a very primitive course, unresponsive realm. It was like being in dirty jello. I have a memory of kind of roots or blood vessels all around me, and it seemed to go forever. The other important thing to point out is my near-death experience was a little atypical uh, in that it, I was amnesic for the life of Evan Alexander. I had no memories. I didn't even have words or language. I had no knowledge of Earth, of this universe, or of anything about humanity. Words and language were gone, and so I was really starting from a very empty slate in this primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm, this earth or my view, but it didn't last forever. I was rescued from that because there came a slowly spinning pure white light and it came packaged with a perfect musical melody. Uh, and that musical melody was important because later on, as I would cycle through all these realms, I, I, by remembering the musical notes, the melody, uh, I could conjure up this beautiful spinning white light uh, time and again. And that was very important in the journey. Mm. But the first time it happened, this light came slowly spinning out of the murky darkness. It had fine silvery and golden tendrils around the edges. As it came towards me, 
it opened like a rip in the, in the fabric of that ugly earthworm eye view realm and, and a portal leading up into what I call the Gateway Valley, this brilliant, ultra-real, vibrant, and very much alive, ultra-real scene, much more real than this world. That's the part that is so hard to put into words for people. And that, that uh, Gateway Valley had many Earth-like features. There were waterfalls into crystal blue pools. There was incredible life, all this plant life growing, uh, blossoms, buds, flowers, all blossoming, open. And uh, as I was witnessing all this, there was no sign of any death or decay anywhere. Uh, and in this beautiful, magical realm with all this plant life, there were thousands of beings dancing down below in this meadow. And I described them as uh, when I wrote it all up weeks later, when I came back to this world and was trying to record my memories, I described them as uh, souls between lives. They were dressed in very simple peasant garb, but it was very colorful. And there was tremendous joy and merriment in all of this dancing going on below me. Now, I was witnessing this as a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. I had no body awareness whatsoever. Uh, and as I said before, completely amnesic, did not even have language or words that I'd had as a human being. So all of this was brand new to me and, and a brand new world without any kind of expectations or understanding. Uh, and the best thing about that, uh, being on that butterfly wing and witnessing all this incredible joy and festivity below me was that I wasn't alone. There was a beautiful girl on the butterfly wing and it doesn't get better than that. These sparkling mm -hmm. blue eyes, her high cheekbones, high forehead, broad smile, soft, uh, uh, light brown hair framing her face. And she was dressed in that same kind of simple garb as all those uh, beings down below dancing in the valley. And she never said a word to me. She never had to, but her thoughts and her emotional power came into me telepathically. And I remember her message to me, I think is the central message of the book, Proof of Heaven, and really of my message to this world from my NDE. And that is to all souls. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You will be taken care of. And I think uh, that is really the central aspect of it. We need to know that we really have nothing to fear and to have that trust in the universe that we will be taken care of. Now, at the same time as I'm witnessing all this, there was this soft summer breeze that blew through. And it changed everything, even though the scene stayed the same. And what I witnessed, my understanding of it shifted dramatically because that soft breeze, which I refer to in my later writings, I called it a divine wind or the breath of God. That was my first awareness of the divine and of the creative power of an infinitely loving force at the core of the universe that washed through this entire scene. And I could see that, in fact, that divine force ruled all of those lower realms. I knew of the, the lower uh, kind of material realms, having witnessed all of that collapsing down as the spiritual scene and a different causality within time uh, associated with it, something I'll, I call deep time. Um, but in that realm and in that awakening, the power and awe of that message to me from the beautiful girl coming in telepathically and this awareness of the uh, force of the divine, of unconditional love to rule this world was really overwhelming and incredibly comforting, given all the kind of confusion I'd had to date in this experience. Now, it turns out, though, that those um, all of this joy and merriment below me was being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of angelic uh, beings. Uh, they looked like a pure uh, kind of uh, uh, 
golden, uh, uh, not spheres, but kind of ovals, leaving these sparkling uh, trails. And each one seemed to have its own uh, spiritual presence. So in many ways, they were kind of like angels, but no, they weren't flying with wings or anything like that. But I sensed their angelic choirs. That's what I called them because they were emanating these chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through me and just this pounding awareness of being alive and being uh, integrated with this entire scene. It's one of the important things to stress about near-death experiences is one of the reasons they're so difficult to describe is because we're not seeing things with the eyes or hearing with the ears. You see all directions at once. You see through everything. You basically know through identification, just as near-death experiencers have been describing uh, you know, for uh, thousands of years, literally, the, the life review, the, you know, your life flash before your eyes. And the interesting thing to note about that, the more people who you discuss it with and listen to life reviews, you hear that they're not experiencing it on their own behalf, but as the people around them who were affected by their actions and thoughts. So the life review is a beautiful example of how our sense of self, in many ways, is an artificial construct that is built in so that we have some buy-in to this particular game where I see myself as an individual in this body, um, and yet we're all, in some sense, sharing one mind. That's what's so crucial to get about all this, and there are lessons from quantum physics that lead to this, as well as many lessons from the study of exotic human experiences like near-death experiences and and, uh, shared death, uh, after-death communications, past-life memories in children indicative of reincarnation. I mean, all of this body of evidence suggests that consciousness is primordial in the universe and not created by the brain. That was something I was witnessing firsthand on this journey. Now, those angelic choirs provided yet another portal to higher and higher levels. I remember seeing all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down, all of what I call deep time, a different order of causality for that spiritual realm collapsing down until I was all the way out to what I call the core infinite inky blackness but filled to overflowing with uh, the uh, healing power of that divine love of that unconditional love of the creative source for the creation and in that core realm the entire higher dimensional multiverse through all eternity infinity had been collapsed down into this uh, complex oversphere that was there to serve as part of the lessons that were conveyed to me. Uh, now these lessons and remember i had no evan alexander awareness at all i had no knowing of humanity and of my connection to humanity, although what I did see was an incredible lesson about vast waves of civilizations throughout this universe and how there's always this similar process of incarnation into these, uh, into these kind of bodies or this kind of physical form where we're intentionally dumbed down to what our higher souls know between lives. Um, and so anyway, in this core realm, so much more of that was presented to me. The, the fact that reincarnation is an absolutely essential part of understanding how any of this could work. All of my religious upbringing in that Methodist church had never prepared me for that kind of thinking. And yet it was obvious from my journey that you cannot understand any of this if you think it's one incarnation, then eternal heaven or hell. That made zero sense. And so reincarnation was crucial. Also seeing the fundamental nature of consciousness and seeing how quantum physics was a uh, absolutely essential uh, key ingredient to understanding all this, 
because it's really uh, through grokking that measurement paradox in quantum physics and realizing the primacy of consciousness that we can begin to understand any of this. At any rate, in my uh, coma journey, as I discuss in Proof of Heaven, I would then tumble back down to that uh, lowly earthworm eye view realm and it, uh, you know, in all of its kind of dumbed down uh, kind of murkiness, but I remembered the musical notes of the melody that enabled me to conjure up that beautiful spinning melody uh, that opened up into that rich, ultra-real valley, the Gateway Valley, and then, of course, the angelic choirs providing portals to uh, back to the core realm. And I made that journey several times until towards the end of it all, as I had been promised, every time I was taken into that core realm, you're not here to stay. Uh, we'll teach you many things, but uh, you'll be going back. I'd even come to believe that going back just meant back to the earth where my view, uh, because that's where I had ended up several times when I tumbled out of that sanctum sanctorum of the core. But uh, to me, that was like no problem, because I knew that by conjuring up these musical notes in my head and then uh, getting that portal back up into the Gateway Valley, I could then follow the portal uh, engendered by those angelic choirs back out to the core. But there came a time when, as they told me, I was not there to stay and I was not going back, and the melody no longer worked to take me up into the Gateway Valley. To say I was sad at that point would be a vast understatement. Uh, <laughs> if you can imagine monsoon rains throughout all of eternity, you might get the feeling of my emotional state. But I also knew at that time that I could trust, that I would be taken care of. And even though I was back in that kind of murky realm of that earth or my view, what I witnessed were thousands of beings around me, often arcs going off into the distance. And, and all of them had their heads down, and there was this murmuring energy coming from them. Many had their hands in front of them, some holding candles. Uh, and then what I called all that when I came back to this world, uh, because the words were not there for me in the experience itself, but I said they were praying, and I could feel that prayer energy. Um, and I couldn't understand any of the words, and I didn't know what it was all about. But it brought me tremendous comfort. Uh, which was a big surprise because so far that earth where my view had not been a place that held much comfort to it. It was very kind of foreboding. Uh, but the fact that now I could witness all these people around me and, and these prayers, uh, as I came to call them later when I came back to this world, but the energy they delivered was loving, comforting, healing. It made me whole again. It was bringing me back. And that's when I also witnessed the six faces I saw uh, that were very important, as I stress in the book uh, Proof of Heaven, because they provided time anchors showing me that the vast majority of the coma experience happened uh, in the first five days of my seven-day coma. And that was very important, especially when I got my hands on my medical records, was looking through the neurologic exams, looking through all the MR and CT scans, discussing all those neurologic features with my doctors who had taken care of me, trying to understand how this could have happened, because they assured me that my neocortex was far too damaged to have experienced anything. And yet I knew I'd had this profound experience, and I knew it happened during days one to five of the coma. But how do we explain it? I mean, uh, bacterial meningitis is probably the most perfect model for human death. Uh, it, it disables the human part of the brain. It destroys the outer surface. Uh, that's the neocortex. That's the part that modern neuroscience says is absolutely essential uh, at least part of it should be working for any kind of conscious awareness. And yet my doctors had good evidence my neocortex was severely incapacitated. I mean, to this day, my doctors will tell you they uh, have no idea how I even came back to this world. 
By the end of that week, I was down to a 2% chance of survival, no chance of recovery at all. And yet over eight weeks after my coma, uh, I recovered completely. Now, when I first was waking up in that ICU bed on day seven of coma, all I remembered was where I had been, that spiritual journey that I discussed in Proof of Heaven. In fact, I had so little memory of Evan Alexander's life uh, that I didn't even have any words or language left, and I did not recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons standing at the bedside. I had no idea who these beings were. Uh, and in the next 36 hours after coming out of coma and being excavated, I was still in and out of a crazy psychotic nightmare. Uh, but the, the memories from that night nightmare, even though they seemed a little more real than a normal nightmare at the time, by comparison with what had happened deep in coma, that there was, they didn't even hold a candle to it. The deep coma experience was far more real, vibrant, alive, crisp, meaningful, sharp, powerful. Uh, I mean, the words just uh, fail miserably at trying to explain that ineffability and of the ultra-reality of it all. Whereas the psychotic nightmare, which is what I was in and out of those 36 hours after uh, coming out of coma, those uh, memories faded within weeks. They're gone. Uh, I'm glad I wrote all that down because I have that to refer to. The memories from the deep coma experience at a time when my brain was terribly inactivated, those memories that are as sharp and clear today as if the whole thing happened yesterday. So it's a tremendous lesson for a neurosurgeon who thought he understood brain, mind, and consciousness to realize consciousness is not created by the brain at all. In fact, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we discuss how memory is not stored in the brain. Uh, that's a hard pill to f swallow, and it's probably such an absolute nail in the coffin of materialist neuroscience that people will have trouble letting go of it. But neurosurgeons have suspected for a long time, given all the operations we've done resecting neocortex from millions of patients over the last century, and yet never encountering a pattern of prescribed uh, you know, memory loss that comes from that experience. It, you can interfere with the medial temporal lobes and, and prevent the conversion of short-term to long-term memories, but that has nothing to do with interrupting memories where they might be stored. And in fact, all the evidence from neurosurgery would suggest that physical me memories are not stored in the physical brain at all anyway. So this was a giant wake-up call for a neurosurgeon who thought he had some under understanding of the relationship of brain, mind, and consciousness. I have so many questions. Same. <laughs> I mean, I don't even really know where to start. Okay. So, you know, for our listeners, so, I mean, you are beyond master genius and I'm not quite there. So physically, what was, so physically what happens with the meningitis that you had from a neuroscientist perspective? So what were scientists thinking that will, what was happening to you? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I've often been asked to speak to medical and surgical groups because they recognize the details of, of kind of the answer to the question you're asking. What was going on? My doctors knew from my exams that my neocortex was badly impaired uh, even in the first few hours. Uh, and then it got rapidly worse. I mean, I was unconscious from the moment I hit that ER. Mm. Uh, I have no memory of it whatsoever. Um, and they could tell that I had what are called pathologic reflexes uh, beginning a few hours after I got there. Uh, and those reflexes show damage not just to the neocortex, but actually deeper damage, damage to the brainstem. 
Um, and, and that's what they were documenting. Now, it'd be one thing if all you had were these neurologic exams, which basically were painting a very bleak picture, like all of my neocortex uh, had been uh, uh, badly damaged by this. But, but really, you need scans in the form of CT and MRI scans to really prove how extensive uh, the illness is. And my scans showed that all eight lobes of my brain were affected by this uh, disease. Uh, and not only that, but the, the what's called blurring that was at the deep layer, you know, the neocortex has six layers of neurons, and at the deepest layer, it lies on top of all the cables, what's called the white matter. And uh, when you see blurring of that, of that deep layer six, which is actually well, layer one, but that deepest layer where it abuts that white matter, uh, that's a very bad sign. It means the entire thickness of the neocortex is swollen. And basically, my doctor saw that kind of swelling or blurring of the gray-white junction, as it's known, uh, in all eight lobes of my brain. So they knew that all eight lobes were involved in this process. And it turns out because of the physiologic anatomy of the neocortex, which I describe in the second appendix of the, of the book Proof of Heaven, you can realize that once you wiped out those more superficial two layers, you really uh, have greatly destroyed the functional integration of the neocortex. So in other words, my doctors had very good evidence from my neurologic exams and from those scans and from lab values. For example, uh, the glucose level, the sugar level in my cerebrospinal fluid, which in most people is between 60 and 80 milligrams per deciliter, uh, and in somebody with a very bad bacterial meningitis, it might be as low as 20. Well, my CSF glucose was one. None of the consultants had ever seen uh, a patient so sick from their meningitis, the glucose level was one. And I had other very alarming features like loss of what's called the oculocardiac reflex, which is kind of a deep lower brainstem reflex. Usually when that's gone, they knew that my Glasgow coma scale, which in a normal person is 15, is a, in a corpse is three, and any number below nine is deep coma. Well, the whole time I was in the hospital, those seven days, uh, my values were anywhere from five to seven. So I was in very deep coma the entire time I was there. My doctors had that information. The loss of that oculocardiac reflex combined with a Glasgow coma scale of, of uh, six to seven portends a, a horrible diagnosis and prognosis. I mean, that's why they were estimated by the end of that week, I was found a 2% chance of survival, no chance of recovery. Uh, and what I've learned, of course, is when you review near-death experiences, you find that uh, miraculous recovery is something that we see. For example, Anita Morjani's beautiful book, Dying to Be Me, where she had an advanced stage four lymphoma back in February 2006. And by any doctor's exam, she should have been dead within 12 hours. And yet she had a profound NDE and came back to this world. Um, and, and what I would say about that is that NDE provides kind of a spiritual mode of healing. If we're willing to learn the lessons from the NDE, and that includes lessons that we are all here to learn in our lives anyway, uh, if we're willing to learn those lessons and open our minds to the grand possibilities, uh, we can get uh, you know physical, mental, emotional health all bundled with that spiritual health that comes from the the sense of oneness and connection from learning those lessons. And that's why I think NDEs have such power uh, to provide healing that defies Western medical explanation. Yeah. What about, I know you talk about the terminal lucidity, like what about that experience do you know now that we can recreate 
without having an actual near-death experience? Like what is what is the science, I guess, that supports the terminal lucidity? And then how can we get close to that? Well, terminal lucidity, I'm so glad you brought that up. Of course, we discuss it in Living in Mindful Universe. And it's one of those uh, major pieces of evidence uh, that you encounter in patients who are dying. Like, for example, if you talk to hospice workers, uh, they often have seen examples of terminal lucidity. I know we met one hospice worker in England a few months ago, and she told me that she sees evidence of terminal lucidity in 98% of cases. Well, I think it dep- it'll depend a little bit on your definition. I'm not sure it's quite mm. that common, uh, but I think uh, there's some aspects of, say, the Alzheimer's literature that suggests in 5 to 10% of cases uh, in those clinical studies where they're not necessarily looking for terminal lucidity, you encounter that exceptional, surprising, and kind of inexplicable uh, reawakening of the patient as they approach death. Uh, And in almost all cases, it happens in people who are within about a week of dying. And in in many ways, is a very good sign. Uh, There is no explanation for terminal lucidity in the conventional neuroscience, the physicalist neuroscience that I used to worship before my coma. That is the notion that brain creates consciousness, which has never really gone anywhere. Nobody's ever made any progress out of the starting gate with that one. Uh, But there are better models of consciousness and how to look at it. But terminal lucidity is a beautiful example because uh, there are are some wonderful stories out there in the literature of of cases of terminal lucidity where somebody may have been comatose for months, not uttering a meaningful phrase for many, many months. Uh, And then right before they die, they come back to life communicative with a family, great sense of memory, reflection, communicate and talk with the family often at a time when they're seeing the souls of departed loved ones who are coming there to escort them over. Uh, and then they leave this, uh, the physical world. Uh, and they're, they're some of the most beautiful and, and hopeful, uh, uplifting stories you'll ever hear, uh, mm. especially if you have a fear of dying. Terminal lucidity is an incredible gift to this world. It's one of the reasons why if my life ever quiets down enough from all of this work I'm doing now, I'm going to get into hospice care and work with the dying because they give us beautiful gifts of understanding. Terminal lucidity is a perfect example of how the brain is not the creator of consciousness at all. That, in fact, the entire universe is projected out of consciousness itself. Consciousness is primordial. The brain is a reducing valve or filter, and it's uh, something that we come to know when you have a near-death or shared-death experience, uh, and that that uh, veil is very thinned and you go right through. That's what's happening in terminal lucidity. Uh, it's kind of working the other way. Their soul is kind of coming back in to the brain that has been so incapacitated to make connections with, uh, with loved ones at the bedside. You know, I'm still here, don't worry, uh, and I'll be here after I leave the physical body. That's basically what terminal lucidity tells us so clearly. So it's a beautiful kind of scientific example of uh, how consciousness is fundamental and does not end with the death of the physical body. Mm, Love that. And do you think, so when you had this experience, do you think you were going through levels of consciousness? So you started out with this kind of red experience and then you moved through, you know, to the valley with the girl and these people dancing and almost like to the black, which was, you know, divine love and pure love. Do you, do you believe that this would be how most people would move through consciousness? Or do you believe that you're a special case when dying? Or what do you think that journey relates to everyone else? 
Well, as I read uh, near-death accounts, and I've read hundreds of them, or not thousands, and also talk with people at our, our workshops and meetings and conventions and all that uh, who've had near-death experiences, what is, is apparent to me is that we're all really talking about a very similar realm. Uh, and just because people's experiences and their description of it can be different doesn't mean we're not talking about the very same realm. In fact, when you uh, look at, uh, say, the the uh, Bruce Grayson's handbook on 30 years of experience uh, looking at NDEs, what you find is that the territory is actually quite common. And what I often have to point out to people is if we took 20 people, say, in a workshop, and we teleported all of them into Paris, but we did it randomly and sprinkled them all around Paris, and then we brought them all back 12 hours later, we would get a lot of different stories from people, depending on their own personality, what they were interested in, where they landed, who they encountered. Uh, but that getting the different stories doesn't mean there's not a Paris. There is still one Paris. And believe me, uh, kind of the spiritual realms are far vaster than anything you can imagine in our physical realms. But it's really striking, no matter what the medical circumstances leading to an NDE, and no matter what one's prior religious beliefs or lack thereof, because I've heard some great NDE stories from atheists who were shocked into a whole new reality. But the important thing to point out is they don't just follow our normal preconceptions from our religious beliefs. For example, to me, it was crystal clear from my journey that reincarnation is absolutely essential to understanding any of this. And you can bet that was not part of my prior religious beliefs. Uh, I didn't even realize there was a strong scientific uh, support of reincarnation, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, uh, having uh, over the last 60 years studied more than 2,700 cases of past life memories in children, uh, where really the best explanation is often one of reincarnation. Now, you could argue that some of those cases might involve fraud or deception, but these are scientists who were looking in advance fraud or deception and trying to prevent it all. Uh, and especially when you realize that of those 2,700 cases, something like 35% of them actually had a, a birthmark that corresponded with the lethal injury of a prior incarnation. You start Whoa. paying attention to it. Okay? <laughs> Anybody who has I'm looking for my that, birthmark. I know. <laughs> Anybody who has questions about that should visit the uh, uh, Division of Perceptual Studies uh, website at UVA, so dops.uva.edu, wow. uh, to learn a lot more about it. But they've done tremendous work. And Jim Tucker, who's the current head, is doing a tremendous amount of work about getting those stories out there. You really have to broaden our understanding of the nature of consciousness, relationship of brain and mind, and all of these examples of non-local consciousness to start getting the bigger picture. And the very first thing they point out is the physical brain is not the producer of consciousness. It just doesn't work that way. Mm. Uh, and there's tons of evidence uh, to the contrary. Um, and in Living in a Mindful Universe, we talk about what's called the primordial mind hypothesis, which is simply our notion of how you combine filter theory uh, with this notion that, that, that this God force, this consciousness, is what exists and creates all the rest of the emergent universe. Uh, and it's really just kind of opening our eyes to a much bigger vision of who we are, why we're here, where all this is headed, and every bit of it is hinged on a deeper understanding of the nature of consciousness, which involves things like terminal lucidity uh, and the near-death experiences and those past life memories in children, etc. 
uh, to help us get into the mode of, well, how do we explain all of this once we realize that it's not just all a, a vast hallucination? Mm. You mentioned why why we're here. And I'm just thinking like, okay, so you were a neurosurgeon for what, 15 plus years oh, and 20 plus, 20 plus <laughs> more. Yeah. 15 years of Harvard Medical School teaching. But right. I, oh, 15. Okay. Years there. Yeah. So oh, I'm just great. thinking like, so that was kind of a life that you lived and then this happened to you. Like the, the synchronicity, the, the chance, like, how do you view that? Like, do you feel like it is kind of like this divine path and now you are like living in this new purpose that is, you know, on a next level consciousness. I'm just like blown away. <laughs> I don't well, know how to explain the it. The reality here is that we are all on a divine path. Every yeah. soul is playing a role in this journey. You know, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, even though there are great similarities in near-death experiences and other spiritually transformative experiences to suggest a common ground, a common realm for them, or let's say a multi-layered stepping of conscious awareness all the way to that pure oneness with the entire universe that I describe in the core. So we're each on a journey of discovery. And, and so this just happened to be Evan Alexander's little journey of discovery. I obviously had wrestled in my own beliefs about whether or not there was a God or power of prayer. I had wanted to believe those teachings in that Methodist church growing up. And during those decades as a neurosurgeon, I'd somehow convinced myself, well, I don't see how awareness after death of the physical brain and body could happen. Um, and then I had the dark night of the soul, that perceived rejection from my birth mother in the year 2000. But it led to eight years of, frankly, dismissing any notion of a loving personal God, power, prayer, and afterlife. I just mm. threw it all out the window as impossible because uh, it was such a dark event for me to have that perceived rejection. Well, it turns out that uh, that was just part of my soul journey. I needed that facet of it. And likewise, I needed what happened to me deep in coma. And I think the important thing is just having an open mind. Uh, you know, as a neurosurgeon or scientist, of course, I had to come back to this world and understand it uh, from a scientific viewpoint because it completely uh, rattled my cage. It, it, it made me go back to square one and doubt everything I'd ever come to believe about the nature of reality because I knew that somewhere deep at the fundament of all that understanding, there were some very uh, kind of rot boards that needed to be thrown out. Uh, it was no longer a useful foundation. And, and the biggest of those assumptions, which is I've come to realize as I've seen the parallels of my journey of discovery with modern science at large, uh, is that notion of physicalism, that all that exists is the physical. And all the confusion that comes to the quantum physics world over the measurement paradox, the fact that the result of a measurement that we make uh, of electrons and protons and uh, like a double slit experiment, uh, that it depends on choices made by the mind of the observer. And in fact, all that emerges as results of these quantum experiments depends on an observing mind. That's the part that is so striking. In, in quantum physics, it's known as contextuality. It has to do with the fact uh, that uh, uh, the results just don't just kind of happen, that they depend so much on that observing mind and how it is setting the stage for knowledge and, and what it is is trying to gain. And so that is where we really have to broaden our minds because in essence, quantum physics is the deepest possible look 
at the mind-brain connection. Uh, it looks directly at the physical universe in the form of our brain and everything else physical related to the brain. Uh, and it, but it also looks at knowledge, at mind, at consciousness. And it looks at what is the relationship between those two. Uh, and the production model, you know, of materialist or physicalist science is easily understandable when you realize, well, they've been charged for 400 years of the scientific revolution to study the material world. And in fact, if Galileo and Bacon and, and uh, Newton and some of the brilliant fathers of the scientific revolution strayed it all close to the realm of mind and consciousness, they were likely to get burned at the stake, uh, just as Giordano Bruno indeed was uh, in Italy, um, uh, you know, during uh, Inquisition having to do with uh, his observation that distant stars might be suns with planets and life on those planets. He was thinking way ahead of the time. And he was mm. tortured and, and burned because of that belief. So these guys knew not to mess with mind and consciousness. And I think that was burned into their DNA. And so they kept studying matter, 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 even to the point of neuroscientists in the 20th century studying the matter of the brain, expecting that that's where they're going to find consciousness. But uh, as we discuss in Living in a Mindful Universe, you do not find consciousness there. You do not even find memory in the brain. Uh, it, the brain serves as a mechanism for contacting and accessing consciousness and memory, but it is not the ultimate repository of it. And so this is really about science uh, becoming much wiser and looking at the evidence and all the evidence, and not just dismissing that huge swathe of, of human experience like near-death experiences, shared death, after-death uh, communications, and past life memories in children, and saying it's impossible because it doesn't fit our you know, brain produces consciousness model. Instead, why don't we follow where the data lead? That's what science is supposed to do. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. And that's what we do in living in a mindful universe. And that's what many other scientists around the world are doing now. By not just studying the brain, because if you're looking for consciousness in the brain and all you study is the brain, you're just going to get frustrated. Uh, you're not finding it there. Uh, and the evidence leads more and more to the necessity for bigger models. But that's why uh, we have that primordial mind hypothesis that we point out in Chapter 5 of Living in Mindful Universe. There are different ways of looking at it. There are other scientists that we work with who are fully on board with this, that this is the way forward. But the good news for the average person in the street is that this new way of thinking and paying attention to this evidence and coming up with a more reasonable uh, interpretation of quantum physics is one that easily allows for the afterlife, it allows for reincarnation, but not only that, it brings human free will right back front and center in charge of how we live our lives. Because one thing that many people don't realize about the materialist model of brain creates consciousness, and, and that you know, scientific notion in quotes that the afterlife is a bunch of new age woo-woo, is this, uh, the notion that, um, that the brain is the producer of consciousness. And and that's why this, uh, this whole revolution is so extraordinary. And because they believe the brain produces consciousness, that it's all just chemical reactions uh, of, of, of particles, electrons, atoms, following the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, there's no place for free will. They basically would say conscious awareness uh, is an illusion. It's just the epiphenomenon of those chemical reactions in the brain. Uh, but it, that would leave no place whatsoever for a human to have a choice. That's why quantum physics 
is such a deep mystery because it shows that the mind of the observing scientist and how he asked the question, whether he wants to look at the photon as a uh, particle or as a wave, determines how that photon behaves. Uh, and that is something that has no explanation in materialist science. Uh, and so free will, we are in charge of our choices and decisions in this life, uh, as opposed to what materialist science would try and convince you of. I wanted to talk about, too, something that you were talking about um, during your experience was the importance and the um, part that music played. Can you talk about the experience with music and kind of how music was integral into you bringing these memories back to this plane? Yes, that's that's a beautiful question. One one of the kind of strongest uh, memories I had of the entire experience was how I was actually able to navigate those multiple levels. Uh, of that spiritual realm, you know, from the earth form I view up into that brilliant ultra-real valley. Uh, and then through several other layers of seeing all of the four-dimensional space-time collapse and of deep time, of that causal ordering in that spiritual realm, all of that collapsing down, all the way out to that core, to infinite oneness with all of eternity, infinity, and the creative source of the universe, oneness with that God force. Every bit of that was enabled through sound. Uh, and th- that was something I witnessed by recalling the, the musical notes, that perfect melody that ushered me up into that valley, that first pass through. And then likewise of the chants and anthems and hymns of, of those angelic choirs ab- above that time and again would offer portal to that highest level all the way out to the core realm. So it was clear to me when I came back to this world, and of course the ultimate, uh, was the sound that I remembered uh, in that core realm, in that uh, world of pure oneness with the, with the divine, the, the source of all creation for the entire uh, multiverse. That oneness was generated uh, from a being that I called Alm. To me, when I came back to this word, world, the word God was a puny little human word with a lot of baggage, a lot of kind of religious orthodoxy conflicts between various human voices. Um, and all of that really obscures the fact that that force is absolutely real and alive, that force of pure love and connection and oneness. And that's why I defaulted early on to calling that deity Alm, because to me, Alm had no baggage at all. I had no idea at that time that Alm had been used in Hinduism and in meditation routines. To me, it was simply the sound I had heard in that core realm. It was the resonance of that wisdom, of that sage creative force throughout all of eternity and infinity. Uh, And that was that Alm sound that I brought back to this world. So Alm was kind of the ultimate uh, sound of source and of creative love and of that binding force. Um, and, and then, of course, uh, beginning about two years after my coma, I started realizing how the only way to make any sense of this was to develop a much richer, a more robust mode of going within my own consciousness, of mindfulness, of meditation, of going within. Because once I realized the brain was, I mean, the mind was not created uh, consciousness not created by the brain, but allowed in as a filtering mechanism, then I realized that maybe I can thin that filter through meditation and develop a much richer connection with my higher soul, with that fundamental force, that that uh, that alm uh, consciousness, that uh, God force at the core of creation of the entire universe. And so I started a program of meditation. I heard uh, early on there, two years after coma, about uh, binaural beats about the uh, it's a phenomenon that was first discovered by a Prussian physicist 
uh, back in the mid-1800s, actually, uh, a fellow named Wilhelm Heinrich Dove, who uh, discovered that if you put a slightly different uh, tone into one ear compared to the other, for example, 100 hertz, 100 cycles per second tone in one ear, 104 hertz, only four uh, cycles per second off in the other ear, you generate the arithmetic difference between them. Somewhere in your brain, you hear this wah, 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 kind of wavering sound that's equal to the, the difference between those two input frequencies. Uh, and so I started using some of that kind of technology, and that's right around the time that I met Karen Newell, uh, my life partner and also the co-author of the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, and came to realize, as I was realizing at that time, that idealism, that you know, this primacy of mind, of consciousness in creating the universe was an idea that had a rich philosophical history, and it was one that quantum physics pointed to very uh, directly. Well, for me, uh, idealism, that you know, the universe is mental and that uh, all of what happens in it is determined by mental interaction, say, of, of human beings and, and their free will. Well, Karen had been living that her whole life. She knew the reality of mind over matter. She knew the power of things like placebo effect, uh, but that her mind could control emergent reality. And she had seen examples in all of those around her of the same kind of thing. She was also using sound to get deep into altered states of conscious awareness to transcend that veil of the physical brain. Uh, and so to me, it was fascinating that I had discovered on my journey, the most fundamental information was that sound uh, was how we navigate that terrain. Although, of course, I'm sure your listeners will realize that in those spiritual realms, you're not hearing sound with the ears at all. Just as we said earlier, in NDEs, you don't see with the eyes. Uh, so in other words, sound and what we see and experience and become and know uh, can have a much richer base of origin than uh, you know things that we see with our eyes in the physical realm or hear with our ears. Uh, and that, of course, is very crucial, is that form of knowledge uh, and that we can come to know things far beyond what we can reason our way to with our little linguistic brain, you know, the voice in our head. In fact, the voice in our head is not our ally at getting into these deep truths. You don't read about it, think about it, and then kind of use that linguistic voice in your head to work your way towards uh, the truth, although that can help set a cognitive structure uh, on which to hang all this, but the ultimate knowledge is gained from going within. That's why meditation is so important. That's why I view Sacred Acoustics, uh, which is the company that Karen co-founded with her partner, uh, Kevin Cossey. And from my point of view, my perspective, uh, they've offered the, the richest and most profound uh, kind of binaural beats, although their uh, neural helix technology goes far beyond just simple binaural beats. It's multi-layered. It combines uh, monaural beats and also does every bit of that within completely harmonic principles, bringing all of it together into one package. Uh, and for anybody who's interested, I would recommend they go to sacredacoustics.com and do the free 20-minute OM download, listen through headphones, and pay attention to her uh, training videos on that Sacred Acoustics website. Uh, but sound is an incredibly powerful tool. And the reason I think that these binaural beats and that form of differential frequency sound is so powerful as a neuroscientist, is because it's not depending on any kind of sound facilitating a processing done at the level of the neocortex, which is a modern evolution. You know, the cortex evolved in mammals, and the neocortex, our particular form, is one that only exists in humans, uh, although other animals, including dolphins and whales, 
uh, can have forms of neocortex that can be fairly complex and in some ways uh, more uh, complex uh, than humans. So they're, they're very interesting uh, to study. But the fact is that these, these beats uh, that we're talking about in sacred acoustics tones are influencing the lower brainstem. They're going a very ancient uh, circuit, one that evolved more than 300 million years ago, long before mammals, back when reptiles and amphibians were first kind of crawling out of the muck. Uh, that's when this uh, ancient brain circuit arose, and that's the exact circuit we're targeting with these differential sound frequencies. And I believe that's the reason they are so powerful, uh, because people who try these, and if you go to the testimonials page on sacredacoustics.com, you'll see a lot of testimonials to the kind of journeys that people are getting out of these sacred acoustics tones. And uh, it's amazing what sound can do, something as simple as sound. In fact, there's a beautiful book by Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E, called Dark Night, Early Dawn, mm. where he does a direct head-to-head comparison of psychedelic drugs as possible catalysts for spiritual awakening, and he compares that with binaural beats. Uh, his, he's studying a, a more uh, primitive form, that is, uh, that was developed in the 1970s by Robert Monroe and some of his work in out-of-body experiences. But what Christopher Bache concludes is that you can get as far or farther in uh, this kind of spiritual investigation into these realms using sound compared to psychedelic drugs. And I would tend to agree with that. I would discourage people from just uh, trying to use psychedelic drugs to get there because, in fact, I believe you can get more information. There's less splash. There's less noise when you use sound to get there as opposed to the psychedelics because they really... Uh, can wreak havoc, especially if it's not done in a sacred setting, not done with a, appropriate supervision. I think those drugs uh, can be quite dangerous and would encourage people really to work with sound. Mm, yeah, I've always wondered why I've been able to drop in so much quicker when, you know, listening to whether it's 432 hertz or even just certain songs or, or voices that help me to drop in. So is it is it like connecting to what's happening in the brain or is it on like a cellular level that these vibrations are changing what's going on in your body or is it kind of a, they're working well, together? I would say it, it really, we're, what we're doing is we're using the sound to free up your conscious awareness. Mm. Uh, kind of the rough picture I would put out there for your listeners is that by basically taking charge of this circuit, the superior olivary complex in the, lo- in the lower brainstem. It's actually in the upper medulla, lower pons. Uh, but in that area, creating this oscillation, it's basically a left-right oscillation, which is very much how, when you think about it, hypnosis, using a visual stimulus with slow oscillations of the eyes back and forth, that's actually using a motor driving system in the midbrain to alter consciousness. Likewise, EMDR, you know, eye movement desensitization and reprogramming or reprocessing is, is likewise using eye movements to kind of trigger this, uh, this oscillation in the lower brainstem. And likewise, I would say that what these are doing is triggering that oscillation, which is allowing your conscious awareness to be set free. And I, I would, you know, I would say the science behind this still um, lacks a lot of definition and uh, much of this is conjecture, but uh, in fact, that by, uh, by doing this oscillation at that level, we're actually monotonizing the information processing in the neocortex. 
And that's where I think the magic is. And that's where we're releasing your conscious awareness. So it is no longer slave uh, to the workings of the neocortex and the kind of here and now in this material world where your body is. But it's allowing your conscious awareness to roam much more freely, you know, in those realms of consciousness, the same realms that I was exploring deep in my NDE that were far removed from anything in this physical universe. Well, likewise, I think that that's where sound, differential frequency sound in particular, uh, has so much power uh, to really enable us to, uh, to pay attention to all this and to make progress into exploring uh, those alternate realms. But it also, as people have discovered, uh, engenders things like uh, out-of-body experiences. If you're here in the material realm and you're just trying to get out-of-body, uh, but do it here. Or likewise, remote viewing, which is mm. another way of using consciousness but um, uh, with remote viewing or the psychic spy program, as it was called, uh, people are looking for ways to uh, uh, get information about this material world, but doing ways that are non-local to our physical brain and our physical senses. And uh, as Jessica Utz, the head of the American Statistical Association in the year 2015, said to uh, uh, 6,000 of her fellow of her fellow uh, statisticians at that meeting in her presidential address, things like remote viewing and precognition have been proven statistically. You know, if they weren't such controversial topics, the scientific world would have accepted remote viewing and precognition as very real a long time ago. And yet they hit such buzzwords with the materialists who like to think that the brain creates consciousness that they won't hear of it. Um, mm. Too bad, because uh, the statisticians, the facts of the science, the investigation reveals that it's all real. Uh, the consciousness is not bridled by the brain and the here and now. Uh, so this is simply a way of thinning that veil, and I think we're doing it by interfering with the generation of consciousness at that very primitive level in the lower brainstem. Yeah, I that was beautifully said. And um, I think something that was interesting too, that I wanted to point out during your story was the importance of prayer. So when yeah. you were, you were um, at, I think it was like day five of your seven day coma and you were kind of in that earth view um, of consciousness was the fact that you saw the people walking and you saw them praying. And that was a um, comforting feeling for you. And that kind of helped you feel better about where you were in the universe. Well, it, it was. It was a very comforting thing. As I, I mentioned uh, earlier, um, I had gone to that Methodist church all those years. I used to take my sons to church. But one of the casualties of that um, uh, perceived rejection by my birth mother in the year 2000 was I stopped praying and I stopped going to church. I stopped saying prayers at night with my son. So I basically lost any interest that prayer could have, have value. Uh, my coma journey, of course, showed me very clearly what I witnessed uh, as a, I emerged from that, I know that all that emergence from the spiritual journey happened on the last, on day six or seven of that coma. And that's where I witnessed that power of prayer. And in many ways, it seemed like uh, they were calling me back. And these were thousands of beings, and uh, the vast majority of whom I had no idea who they were. Uh, now, I do know, I did hear later, you know, that people did pray in the room for me and that there are prayer groups uh, you know, up in Boston where I lived mm. or in North Carolina where I lived. Uh, so I knew that there were prayer groups out there um, and even prayers going on at my bedside, even though I was not aware, I have no memory of any of that bedside prayer, but there was this very strong knowing in me that that was a, a big uh, kind of anchor line that helped to bring me back to this world. It 
served as an orientation point. Um, and then since that time, as I've come to meditate a lot more, uh, I've come to realize that prayer and meditation uh, have a tremendous power connecting us with that force. And I, I fully believe that uh, prayer does work. Uh, it works. It's important, though, to realize that, uh, in essence, we're realizing that there is kind of a higher purpose. And that higher purpose, especially given the reality of reincarnation, does not always mean that we're to be cured from the physical ailment in this incarnation. Uh, and that's a very important thing to understand. You, you really need to know the bigger scope of all this, and that we all come back in many different incarnations, uh, and that it's all about the growth that we accomplish through those incarnations. So it's not like some blind mechanistic wheel that you encounter in some religious systems, and we're trying to get off that wheel of suffering. This is actually very focused. Um, it's on developing that sense of love and connection and caring for others. And over multiple lifetimes, we become more and more focused on the higher good. And, and I think that's where prayer uh, can be seen to have a lot of, of real power to it. And as I said earlier, uh, to me, especially in studying near-death experiences and coming to acknowledge that so many of that, uh, the cases of that miraculous healing that you encounter, not just uh, Anita Morjani that I mentioned a few minutes ago, but another beautiful example is Mary C. Neal, the orthopedic surgeon, uh, who wrote a book called To Heaven and Back, and she was in a kayaking accident in Chile back in the late 1990s and had a very profound near-death experience. But the physical challenge was that she was kayaking and, the, and her kayak got jammed 10 feet underwater in these rocks, and she was stuck underwater with her legs broken for more than 30 minutes. Now, you don't just come back from that, people. And she did. She was resuscitated. You know, it took a long, long time of recovery, but she bounced back to the point where she's an active orthopedic surgeon and goes around presenting her NDE story like I do. I've presented with her several times. I love presenting with Mary. But it's just another example of how extraordinary physical, mental, emotional healing can come on the tales of spiritual healing. And that's where mm. prayer is so important because prayer is what invokes the spiritual healing. Uh, but I've gotten beyond the point where I'm asking for someone to be healed. I ask for comfort and love and for the higher good to be done. And I think in many cases with, you know, the open mind and with the, with the love, that can result in return to this world, but not always. And it's important to realize that some of the deepest and toughest lessons that we are to learn have to do with losing someone to a physical illness in this incarnation. That part became very apparent to me, especially in the many contacts I had from people who had lost children, uh, whose children had died from illness or injury. Uh, and the thing that became apparent to me early on was that they were often realizing that that child was the most important source of strength for everybody involved when they were facing that challenge. Uh, and to me, what that really lit up was an acknowledgement that the child was there to teach a deep lesson about the eternal connection of souls and that loss of the physical body is not loss of our connections. So we need to be willing in invoking this prayer for the highest good to ask that thy will be done, that the highest good for all involved be done and acknowledge that sometimes that result is the physical death that we may be praying now to try and prevent, but that by taking a bigger view of it all, we can come to realize 
that it all is serving a purpose of connection and of knowing the eternity of, of, of soul and that our love is what brings us together and binds us. And it's that love of the universe for us that actually enables us to open our minds to this much richer interpretation of our existence, why we're here, where it's all headed, and that the challenges and hardships like injury and illness can be gifts because it's how we grow to those challenges through prayer and through the response of the universe to those prayers in whatever fashion. Uh, that is what we are here to do and grow into is a much higher version of ourself, more complete. Uh, that's what he, the word healing comes from, uh, wholeness. And that's what we're all trying to do is become more whole. Mm-hmm. And I think prayer often opens up the insight, although for me, I've shifted much in, entirely to a sound-enhanced uh, deep meditative practice, which is a form for me of centering prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question, yeah. Last question for me. What would be like your call to action for our generation? I, I do think that we were born with with a consciousness, or we're all born kind of in that natural state. But I think we've been able to kind of maintain it or stay connected to that um, for whatever reason. But what would be your call to action? Well, that's, that's a beautiful question. Uh, as we, we had our little discussion before this interview, you realize that we dedicated our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, to our three children, to my two sons, uh, Evan the Fourth and Bond, and to uh, Karen's daughter, Jamie. And in that dedication, we say, in the trust that your generation uh, will make this world a far better place. And we mean that very sincerely. I believe that your generation, uh, I mean, My son Evan is 30 right now, Jamie's 29, uh, Bond is 20, uh, and we believe that that generation is the one that will truly grow into this, will come to acknowledge, uh, you know, go within, come get in touch with their higher soul and with this divine uh, healing force of love at the core of the universe. You don't have to wait for an NDE to be smote down by meningitis. By meditation and going within, you can come to see much of this uh, higher good and how it's all about helping others. It's about rescuing the least, the last, and the lost and showing uh, the sense of forgiveness, of acceptance and mercy, but also taking action. When we see injustice, when we see little people out there that are bullied by the big people, uh, it is time for us to stand up for the rights of all beings. And I believe your generation is perfectly positioned uh, not to buy in some of the nonsense that I see my generation, and especially with some of the political agendas that I see emerging now, it, it to me is just uh, kind of an embarrassment for my generation that we don't do a much better job of living up to who we're meant to be. And that is that we take care of each other, that we manifest love, acceptance, mercy, kindness, and forgiveness. Uh, and that we go within, we seek our heart consciousness. This is not just about mental, you know, thinking our way to it. It's about feeling it in our heart that we have a passion for this mission, that we're there to help people who are are uh, downtrodden by the current system, to realize that our system is set up uh, to support a form of kind of economic polarization that tends to make the wealthy wealthier and the poor poorer. And that's not really the way the world should work. Uh, the world should work where we're taking care of each other. I mean, everyone is here to try and to do the best they can to learn and grow as a soul. And that is something that the souls of your generation can just take on board uh, with a sense of mission uh, to really go out, lead with your heart, uh, go within to seek the answers. 
but come out and live in this world with your actions, your thoughts, with your voice uh, to stand up for those who are, are beaten down by the system, uh, those who would say that this is all about consumerism and material wealth. Well, that is not true. The, the only real power and goal of material accumulation is to help all of this world for the better. Uh, and this is something that I believe your generation can take the bull by the horns uh, and, and really honor that and realize that uh, we don't need this massive wealth in the hands of just the tiniest few for happiness and joy. In fact, a recent study I read showed that basically once somebody has around $70,000 in our current economy, they're not going to be buying any happiness with further financial rewards. So really it's about spreading that wealth around and using that wealth that anyone has accumulated to help others, to help especially those who have been disenfranchised by our system. Uh, and to realize that every soul, this is not just about human beings, this is about all of animal life too. There's a very rich spiritual reality to the animal world and animal kingdom, and we can all come to know that and honor that completely. And that is really what I think your generation can take the lead in, is this growth for humanity to become much more of who we were meant to be in the first place. Uh, and that is to honor this love and compassion, kindness, and forgiveness for all fellow life. Mm, beautifully said. We're up for it. Yeah. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> and I trust um, that your generation can absolutely do this and do it well. We're up for the challenge. Um, last thing, just want to make sure they know about your book. So if you could just mention your book and just give them a little bit of information about what it's about so they can go grab it. All right. For anybody who needs background material, the first book was called Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. It came out in 2012. Uh, in 2014, I wrote a follow-up book to that called The Map of Heaven, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife. And that was really just a story of of how common these experiences are. This is not just Evan Alexander's amazing journey that he wrote a book about. It's about something that happens to millions and millions and millions of souls out there. Uh, and so this is really about taking the lid off to let all of them tell their story. Uh, the, this kind of a thing is so strange and mind-boggling, it'll make you think that maybe you've gone crazy. So it's important to realize, no, you haven't, and that this is kind of how higher soul communicates. But the biggest book of all, by far, is the one that just came out in October of 2017, and that is called Living in a Mindful Universe, um, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. And that is all about the revolution that is hitting uh, the scientific world now, all over the mind-brain relationship, uh, and, and pointing out how we have a, a revolution of unprecedented proportions coming to the scientific world over this, over the next decade or two. But the individual out there, like your listener, doesn't have to wait for the scientists to get on board, even though many scientists are already on board about this. Living in a Mindful Universe is also a practical guide with a lot of tools that help people go deep within consciousness to come up with the kind of uh, awareness and uh, guidance that they need to take charge of their life, to live with a higher soul of the, of, or the free will of their higher soul in determining their own destiny. Uh, and for those out there uh, who are interested, I would also point out we have a free 33-day email drip campaign at ebonalexander.com. It's called Your 33-Day Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. 
I would encourage anybody and everybody to join that. Like I said, it's absolutely free. It covers 33 of the main concepts from the book, uh, Living in a Mindful Universe, and introduces them in a nice bite-sized fashion daily, uh, and also with something of a practice. Uh, it also involves some sacred acoustics offerings uh, to help people get into meditation. But I think for people who take that free 33-day course, uh, they will find there's a tremendous amount to this, and you don't have to put up one penny to be part of that. The best part about it is that also people from all over the world have been participating in this course, and there are comment sections under each of the 33 uh, days where people have left their own experiences and comments, and they've helped each other uh, in this. So I would highly advise your listeners to participate in that 33-day course, uh, and then if you're so inclined, uh, you might go out and buy the book or check it out from the library, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, because there is where we really go into the hard arguments from a scientific standpoint and also offer many more of the tools and stories that support the reality of this vision of consciousness and the mind-brain relationship. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to be digesting this for a few mm-hmm. days. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, for people to understand that the mind is, you know, separate from the brain and to be able to kind of work from there. It's a simple thought, but um, I think for them to be able to separate themselves from their thoughts um, and hopefully, you know, reach a higher consciousness is just the beginning. And so thank you so much. I know our listeners are going to be buzzing about this for sure. Um, And they can find you ebonalexander.com as you mentioned. Um, But thank you so much for making the time. We're so excited to talk to Karen soon. Um, That will be great. And we just really appreciate it. Well, thank yes. you. You will find she is my best half. So Aww. best is yet to come. <laughs> thank, thank you so you. much for having me on and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Yeah, Great, have a good one. Thank you so much. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. What movie is that from? Well, may Karen. Must come first. I don't know. Make it. Romeo and Michelle, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. We're, oh, I think it's the beginning of Romeo and Michelle. Oh, look it up. Don't look at me like that. Well, I mean, that's a great. No, I love Romeo and Michelle. Oh, I know, but I mean, that's very likely. Very likely. Eben Alexander, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, it's conversations like those that I think about for months on end. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't drive me crazy, it brings me comfort. And yes. Um, just expands our idea of yes why we're here, what we're doing. Oh, Romeo and yes, Michelle. Yes, bitch. <laughs> this is actually a dope track or a dope like uh, soundtrack. Heaven is the Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle. Mm-hmm. I want candy. Damn, it really, really gets me. I, I want, want candy. candy. Okay. Please don't turn us off yet. <laughs> Please don't turn us the off. The next yet. review is like, I love these girls. They're amazing. Yeah. And they just started to like go rogue at the end of the podcast. They yeah. can't fucking stand them. <laughs> uh, okay. Five stars. Hands down, my favorite podcast. I'm absolutely in love with this podcast. I stumbled across it sometime in the spring and have been hooked ever since. Krista and Lindsay have such warm, welcoming, and authentic personalities that I adore listening to. They brought me so much knowledge from the guests they've interviewed and share on the podcast. Some episodes hit me in the heart and most feel like they're speaking to me on days when I need it the most. They have a true talent when it comes to asking the right questions and giving the guests time to speak when needed. 
You girls make me laugh and feel like you're some of my best friends. I've shared it with a couple of my closest gals and plan to keep doing so. You guys have had such a positive impact on my life. I always look forward to your new episodes to help me through days of work. Thank you for being such a bright light in the world. Would be over the moon excited if Denver was on your tour next year. Of course. Mallory. It is. Yeah, of course, Mallory. Can't wait to meet and This you. is actually Mallory. And I think I know her um, from DMs too. So thank you so much, Mallory. Thank you for the kind review and you know your thoughts. It means... It means so much to us. Me and Lindsay are so grateful for um, everyone that listens in every week or listens to the podcast um, to kind of expand their consciousness, to laugh, whatever it is. But it means a lot that you're here on this journey uh, with us learning and growing together. Yeah. And speaking of visiting a place like Denver that we have not been to, we are going to be doing that more in the new year. So Denver is certainly on the list as well as DC and Philly and- Nashville, Miami. Yeah. Cities in Ohio, mm. Minneapolis, mm-hmm. uh, St. Louis. So mm-hmm. Susie. Um, we're it, gonna see Susie in Minneapolis. Oh yeah, girl. Hey Suze. And then we're doing uh, a live show leg of the tour. So those will be in major cities. Stay tuned for that. And then our college tour. So if you or someone you know are in college or have connections to a university college, uh, the correct department or perhaps a sorority, We'd love to talk to you and connect with you. You can email events at almost30podcast.com. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then your podcast pro. So your podcast pro is on and popping. So check out yourpodcastpro.com. That's a resource for everything people need related to building a successful business for their podcast, launching a podcast, et cetera. Um, so excited to share that with you. And then we will see you next week. Perfect. I love you. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.